Let's try this one more time. Christ is risen. He is risen Christ is risen. He is risen Let's thank God. Lord, thank you. Thank you for what you've done for us. Thank you for the marvelous gift of salvation that you provided for us. We thank you for the cross. We thank you for your, for your death, for your burial, and we thank you for your resurrection. And Lord, we thank you that it gives us hope. It is a turning point for our, our lives. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to see the conquest that took place that day. Help us to see your heart. Open our hearts, open our minds, open our eyes so that we see you completely. In Christ's name, amen. Simon Greenleaf, a royal professor of law at Harvard University, was one of the most celebrated legal minds in American history. His treatise on the law of evidence is still considered the single greatest contribution to literature dealing with legal procedures. As a law professor, he determined to expose the myth of the resurrection of Christ once and for all, but his thorough examination forced him to conclude instead that Jesus rose from the dead. In 19, or 1846, he published this article, notice the title, An Examination of the Testimony of the Four Evangelists by the Rules of Evidence Administered in the Courts of Justice. He didn't understand you're supposed to have short titles. <laughs> Thus, one of the most celebrated minds in the legal profession of the past two centuries took the resurrection of Christ to trial... He diligently examined all the evidence and judged it to be a fact of history. And this was in spite of the fact that he started out his investigation as a skeptic. One of Greenleaf's points is that nothing but the resurrection can explain the dramatic change in the disciples' lives and their willingness to suffer and die for the testimony of Jesus Christ. The fact is, Professor Greenleaf is only one of many people throughout the centuries who have set out to determine and prove that the resurrection is not true, that it is a myth. And they have all, those that set out on this journey, have come to the conclusion after evaluating the evidence that Jesus Christ not only came, not only is he true, but truly he rose again from the grave. My friends, Christianity is all based on the one thing called the resurrection. It is the linchpin of Christianity. If one disproves the resurrection, all of Christianity fails miserably. But if indeed it is true, and it is, it has been proven, then it demands a total surrender of an individual to God. There's no in-between. So where are you today? Have you believed on the resurrection of Christ? If you've believed on that, then it will, it will show in your life. Today, what we're going to see is the resurrection set in motion, a conquest that is still going to this, to this day. And it will continue on until the return of Christ. So we begin this conquest by understanding the triumphal resurrection of Christ. We're going to look in Matthew chapter 28. If you have your Bibles, if not, I'll have the passage on the screen. 
But if you have your Bibles or your apps, turn there and look at Matthew 28. Now, Matthew 28 is going to give us two appearances of Jesus. And if you put all the gospel accounts together, you will realize that there's actually 10 post-resurrection appearances of Jesus Christ over a 40-day period to over 500 people. Now, that's evidence in itself because over 500 people witnessed and verified that Jesus Christ rose from the grave. Now, in Matthew 28, we are going to see three proofs of the resurrection. Proof number one is in verses 1 to 6, and it is the empty tomb. Follow along with me. Matthew 28, 1 to 6. Now, after the Sabbath, towards the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, as he said. Come see the place where he lay. Stop there. It was Sunday the first day of the week, and these two women were bravely going out to the tomb. Mark 16, 1 says that they were going to anoint Jesus' body. And as they approached this tomb, they realized something. They realized that Jesus isn't there. Something dramatic has taken place. Now, I want you to note the bravery of these women. These women were at the cross. And after Jesus was let down, they followed him all, to, all the way to being placed in the tomb. And then they come back Sunday morning. And so while all the other disciples have scattered, these women have the courage to stay with it and to be there at the tomb. Now, it was a violent earthquake and a very strong, radiant angel that distinguished this morning as different from all other mornings. This angel had rolled away the stone, or had it rolled away, and it created such a sound, and they were not interfered, uh, the, the, the angel was not interfered with the, the guards that were there. You got to understand because there was a threat of the disciples coming and stealing the body, the, uh, the, the, the Roman leaders had two guards placed there. Now, these guards wouldn't have been your wimpy guards that were like low on the, low on the pecking order in terms of the Roman guards. These would have been your Navy SEAL type of guards. These would have been the ones that would not allow anything to happen on their duty. But notice what the passage says. They trembled and became like dead men. What's a dead man like? He's down on the ground. These guys fainted. These guys fainted in fear of this angel. Now, though the angel frightened these women, they did not faint. So these were some pretty tough women. Now, the angel had said a very special message to these ladies. He says, the one that you're looking for isn't here. He is risen from the dead, just as he said. Now, these ladies had been following Christ. 
So all the words that Christ had given before his death, before the burial, before the resurrection are now ringing true in their mind. And they knew that Jesus had predicted on three different occasions that this is exactly what would happen. And they knew it, would be, it was true. And the proof that they offered, the angel offered, was the tomb. It was empty. Come, see, look, it's empty. And my friends, that proof is still proof for you and I today. The empty tomb is proof number one. Here's the second proof is that there was an eyewitness account. These ladies actually saw Jesus Christ. Take a look at verse 7. The angel continues in what he says to the ladies. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. Underscore the word Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell the disciples. And behold, Jesus met them saying, greetings. And they came up and they came up and took hold of his feet and worshiped him. Then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, underscore that word, and there they will see me. So it's interesting. The angel says, don't worry. Go tell the disciples, go to Galilee. Jesus meets them. They worship him. And he says, don't be afraid. Go to Galilee. What in the world is in Galilee? Why did he tell them to go to Galilee? There's several reasons. Number one, before the, the death of Christ, Jesus had taken Peter aside and he made this statement. He says, Peter, after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. So it was kind of the marching orders of Jesus. He's just plain and simple. I told you to go there. There's a purpose there. I want you to go to Galilee. There's another reason. These disciples were all Galilean. They knew the territory. They, knew, they lived around the Sea of Galilee. They knew it was a safe place away from Jerusalem. But the third reason is that it seemed to be a rally point where Jesus was going to have the disciples come where he would disperse some vital information. On the basis of 1 Corinthians 15, 6, which we read earlier, it states that over 500 believers saw Jesus at one time. I believe that this was the rally point for a lot of those believers to gather. We'll see 11 there, but I believe that there was more there. There was probably up to 500 believers that needed to receive this critical information. Realize that even though this is going to be the rally point, it doesn't preclude that Jesus could appear before then, and he does. He appears in Jerusalem to the disciples at different times. Now, on the way to tell the disciples... Jesus appears to the women and notice their immediate response. What do they do? They worship. They worship. And Jesus says the same thing to, to the ladies that the angel said. Do not be afraid. Why should they not be afraid? Here's why. Because the conquest was underway. And victory, victory should never invoke fear. It should invoke confidence. Go tell the brothers. Go tell the brothers. Meet me in Galilee, and there they will see me. What a rallying cry. Now, the word brothers carries the idea of family, 
brotherhood bond, a common cause, the advancement of the family of God. So this is the second proof. We see that the tomb was empty. We see that there's eyewitnesses account. And here's the third evidence of our passage. Evil opposition took place. Evil opposition took place. Take a look at verse 11. Verse 11 says, While they were going, behold, some of the guards went into the city. And they told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers. They paid them off and said, Tell the people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. Now, please note that any guard that would have been asleep on duty would have received the death penalty. But notice they have an answer to that. Verse 14. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. In other words, we'll give him a little bit of money. We'll grease the wheels. Don't worry. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread amongst the Jews to this day. So you say, why is opposition, evil opposition, evidence of the resurrection? My friends, you don't oppose that which is a myth. You don't oppose that which is a myth. Opposition lets us know that the battle lines have been drawn. And from that day forward, the enemy would try to stop the conquest of Christ. And my friends, it did not take God by surprise that there was evil opposition on this day. And even advanced 2,000 years to our current day, God is never surprised by evil opposition. He's not surprised at the rise of ISIS and how this past week they slaughtered almost 150 Christian students in a, in a school in Africa. God's not surprised by it. The evil, evil has always been present. The lines have always been drawn, and it's in opposition to Jesus Christ. Now, I know this is a simple illustration, but have you ever wondered why when you hit your thumb, people don't say, oh, Buddha. They don't say that. They usually use Jesus' name with a few colorful adjectives after it. Why do they do that? Because on all levels, the enemy wants to defame the name of Christ. That's evidence. The evidence of the triumphal resurrection is the empty tomb. It is the eyewitness account. It is the evil opposition that took place. But notice at the very end of the passage, we see the triumphal procession. We see what takes place. Jesus is about to give some vital information to his disciples. But why is there a triumphal procession? Because this is the place right now in Galilee where Jesus is going to give an incredible commission, some marching orders to his disciples. Because the conquest started with the resurrection, but it will continue on by the work of his Christ followers, the disciples of Christ, just as it continues on to this day through you and I, if you are a believer in Christ. 
And so Jesus is going to give this triumphal procession of how the conquest should come on and should continue. Now, please note that this conquest is not won by military might. It's not like some religions of the world that have advanced by killing and attacking and destroying. No, this conquest would be by love. It would be by the gospel message and the good news of Jesus Christ going out to those who are helpless and those that are hurting. The Apostle Paul talked about this conquest in a different way. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, this is what he says. But thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. I think of a parade. I think of marching us forward. God is marching us forward. And what is he doing? And through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. Through us, he spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of God everywhere. Now get that. Through us, God is spreading the fragrance of God. Have you ever thought of yourself as a fragrance? Now, when I think of some guys, I have a hard time imagining that. Now, you women, not so much, okay? You guys, you smell pretty good. At our community group this week, Regina Koblenz had at her house some smells that made the whole house, like, awesome. She has, like, this oil dispenser thing, and it was thieves Thieves, she's dispensing. Now, you got to understand, as a guy, I really don't care about oils. But I got to tell you, as soon as I stepped into the house, I'm like, wow, this smells really, really good. My wife and I enter, I said, what is that smell? She's like, oh, well, let me tell you about these oils. And I learned all about oils in the last several weeks. I've learned that this is like a big business going on. I mean, all these oils that are for different things. I mean, there's like a billion of them. Maybe not quite a billion, but you can go A to Z and there's one for every letter. Now, let me give you an example. Allspice, uh-huh, guys, you might want to know this, relieves pain. Did you know that? You just put a little bit of that oil where the pain is and it's going to go away. Angelica helps with muscle spasm and reduces gas. This might, smell the, this might solve the smelly guy problem we have. <laughs> Anise treats arthritis and so on. That's just the beginning of the A's. We got all the way through Z, baby. I mean, there's lots of oils out there. But let me tell you about these fragrances. These fragrances will help cure the external. They'll help cure a splinter or, or an earache or a toothache or things like that. But what they won't do is they won't cure the problem of the soul. They won't cure the problem of the heart. But don't worry. God has a fragrance for that. It's you. It's me. We are the fragrance of Christ. We are the oil of life. We are the ones that are to be the cure for the heart of man. That's what God wants. And very clearly, this is what we're going to see in Matthew chapter 28 at the very end. As he gathers his disciples, he says this. Look at verse 16. Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee. Now I believe many others were there as well, but the focus is on his key leaders. To the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. 
And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you to the very end of the age. Now I want you to know, based on, based on other appearances of Christ, it would seem as if this Galilean experience took place a couple weeks after the resurrection of Christ. We know that Jesus had uh, walked around and had met, made appearances for 40 days, and he, he, he made himself known to the disciples as well as 500 people. When Jesus first appears, the, the first response of the people here is what? It's worship. It's worship again. Now, some doubt it. That's what makes me believe that there are some people, uh, 500 others that are there, because I think by that point, the disciples were firmly committed. Yeah, yeah, he is, he's definitely risen from the grave. But there were some that were scattered around. It's like, is that really Jesus? I mean, really? I mean, I, I want you to know, whatever doubts were there, they were completely dispersed once Jesus started to speak. And Jesus was about to give a command. And Jesus was going to give a command, but I want you to know the context of that command. It was actually a two-word command. The context of the command is the very first thing that Jesus says. And what does Jesus say? He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. My friends, why would he start out with that statement? Because he's the resurrected Lord. He is the King of kings. It is proven. There is nobody else that has faced death and after three days has risen from the grave. He is the only one who had the authority to be able to make that statement. Soon after, he would go up to the heavens. And guess where he's going to be sitting? He's going to be sitting on a throne at the right hand of God. Ephesians 1 says this. Jesus is seated at God's right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that has been given, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. So understand that when Jesus gives a command, he says, this is what I want you to do. Know that it's not an option. It's not like if you feel like it. This is coming from the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, the proven, resurrected one. So that's with authority. And so Jesus says, go and make disciples. See, the two Word command is make disciples. A couple weeks ago, I touched on this passage, but I want to go a little bit deeper into this idea of this command. It's worth us dwelling as we talk about the conquest and how it involves you and I. My friends, there's only two words that we are to really carry out in our job description. It's pretty simple. Jesus made it really simple for us. Make disciples. You say, well, Steve, I'm not certain what that means. Well, he's going to spell it out for us. But the first thing he tells us is the location in which we make disciples. He says, I want you to make disciples of all nations. 
So the first thing that we know is that we are to go to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, uttermost parts of the world. And that's exactly where we see the gospel going out if you follow through the book of Acts and on. We see the gospel going out to all the nations. And my friends, that commission is still given to us at Mission View. That's why we're not just concerned about North Canton. We're concerned about other communities going into the world. It's a pretty big task. So what does he mean by making disciples? Well, Jesus gives three participles in order to give a defining of making disciples. And through this, we get our action points of what disciple making is all about. For years, people have said, well, what does it mean to make a disciple? Look at Matthew 28, because he makes it really clear. The first conquest action point that we are to do is to go. Now, the word go is in a tense that says, as you are going through life, make disciples. That's one of the reasons why I ask you to have a core. Remember what a core is? C-O-R, what is it? Circle of responsibility. Every person has a rhythm of life of people that you interact with in which you have the opportunity as you are going through this life to represent him. Now, I think for the disciples, this should have been a somewhat of an easy task, but it was rather difficult going into other cultures because they had deep prejudices that God would have to work through. You can read the book of Acts to see that. But they could, at least at the core, understand who Jesus was and how Jesus had set an example. In the Gospels, we see how Jesus did it. We see that, first of all, and pretty simple, he saw needs. His eyes were open to needs. In Matthew 9, 36, it says, when he saw the crowds. See, Jesus often would look at people, but he would look at them differently than you and I look at people. We look at people as annoying. We look at people as getting in my way. Get out of the way. I want to drive around you. We look at people in every sphere of our life as we're going through life in the wrong way. Oh, if God could just take the blinders off of this guy's eyes so that I could see people as Jesus saw them. He saw people in a different way. Here's the second thing that Jesus did. He felt for those needs. He didn't look at people and say, oh, they're, they're just getting what they asked for. No, this is what it says in Matthew 9. He had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. He felt for their needs. And guess what else he did? He then met those needs physically and spiritually. Some have argued, uh, should, we, should we feed people or should we tell them the gospel? See, all the above. Yes, we should feed people. And yes, we should tell them the gospel because that's what Jesus did. Matthew 9, 35 says, Jesus went through all the towns and villages teaching and preaching the good news about the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness. My friends, Jesus met the physical needs, but he also met the spiritual needs. Jesus, or friends, this is Jesus' evangelism. This is how we get to learn from him. This is how we share the love of Christ. It should come naturally. It's not something that we force down people's throats. We simply show the love of Christ in our circle of responsibility. This is step one in making a disciple. 
You know, early on in my ministry, I used to think of discipleship as something that was only for believers, and we'd sit down one-on-one and go through the Bible together. Please understand, that was a narrow view. I now understand that Jesus gave going as part of the discipleship process. As your pastor, I want to encourage you. You are Easter to people. You are the fragrance of Christ to people. You are the message of hope to people. You are the gospel that's lived out. Live it out. And friends, that's not just for you. It's for this guy as well. I'm not going to tell you to do something that I don't want to do myself. This week, I received an encouraging phone call. A gentleman in our church at Mission View has said, you know, I've been praying about, I've been challenged about reaching out to my core. And he says, uh, so I'd like to use something I'm passionate about. I love to play basketball. And so I'd like to use that as an outreach tool at one of the, uh, my local YMCA. And once we started talking about it, I'm like, awesome. And he's like, yeah, I just wanted to share that with you, see what you thought. I'm like, listen, don't wait on me. Just do it because this is awesome. I want, in fact, my prayer, my prayer for the body is that more and more people would say, let's do this on our own. We're not going to wait for the pastor to tell us to do it. Just know that you've been told, go do it. And I want to see fires develop and a fire for the gospel that would come together as one raging fire that changes a community from the inside out. My friends, law enforcement will uh, take care of things from the outside in, but you and I are part of the law enforcement team in that we help from the inside out, and that's what we want to do in living out this conquest. Last week, Jeff uh, Walker, I was asking him about his travels and how come he traveled so much for his business. He says, well, we hold to two values. One, always do what's right. Two, show up. My friends, that's a great outreach strategy. We start by doing what's right, being people of integrity, but then we show up. So a couple tools that we're going to give you. Number one, this summer, as we're going to be having a lot, people come out of hibernation finally, and we have a chance to interact with people. We're taking our flaming ministry trailer. Oh, it's a beaut. It's a beaut. And we're going to put all kinds of stuff in there. We're going to put an inflatable ride. We're going to put three days worth of Bible curriculum in there. We're going to put a popcorn machine. We're going to put all the stuff that you need to do ministry. And you don't have to get permission from us. All you got to do is go to the website and you're going to see there's a list of all the things that we will have in there. But what you're going to do is you're going to simply say, you know what? I want to do a backyard Bible club with our neighbor kids. Or I want to have a a block party with our neighbors. You're going to have everything that you need to be equipped for that. And so you can sign up online. We'll make sure it's delivered to your house. You utilize, put everything back, and then we will come and pick it up for you because we want you to do the ministry. This is what you are to do. You can get your community group involved. We want there to be a fire in our community wherever you are planted in life. But I also want you to know that we have community events. Couple About a month ago, you all received this calendar. Now, I'm going to just tell you the first calendar, rip up. The second calendar is much different for the summer. Now, here's the reason why. It's not that we weren't organized. It's because God decided to bring up a few things. We normally do family blasts at different communities. 
but we met with some of the community leaders and we met with the people at the library and they gave us a wide open door to say, hey, come join us, be a part, do what you do at the Family Blast with us. And I'll tell you what, we'll take care of a lot of, we'll take care of all the promotion, we'll take care of some of the entertainment, we'll take care of this and that. And I'm like, deal, this is awesome. And we're actually, we've had anywhere from 400 to 1,000 people come to every one of our events in the summer. That's more than we've had. So I'm like, yes, we canceled all of our family blasts, and we're joining the second Friday of each month, June, July, and August, with the library to do that. A couple weeks ago, I had lunch with uh, uh, Chief Wilder. Chief Wilder and his wife are with us, Chief and uh, Wild, Stephen Wilder and his wife, Mary. And it was really cool to sit down with Chief to get to know his heart. But I also found out, I asked him this question. I said, Chief, how can we come alongside of you? And he said, well, you know, I've always wanted to do this kind of like picnic for the whole police family, for their wives or kids. I'm like, deal. Mission View will take care of it. August 16th, in the afternoon, Sunday afternoon, we're going to put on a picnic for the, the police. And we're going to let them know how much we appreciate them. So why do I say all this? My friends, these are practical aspects of go. These are practical aspects that we get to participate in. That's part of our conquest. The second part of the conquest is in the second participle, and that is to baptize. We are to baptize. I believe that baptism is the way that we measure success for the gospel. I said a couple weeks ago that the, it is the barometer of whether or not we are on mission for God. I also gave the challenge that each of us would be so intentional in how we disciple others that it would be our greatest honor to actually baptize our sons, our daughters, our grandkids, our co-workers, our relatives, our friends. As you can see, there's been a lot of that going on over the last 18 months at Mission View. And on July 26th, it is the next baptism. And if you have not been baptized, I would encourage you to be a part of that celebration. And if you are have not baptized anybody, I would encourage you to make disciples and be a part of what Jesus said is the Great Commission. We are to go. We are to baptize. And here's the last thing that we're to do. We're to teach. We're to teach. Notice what Jesus says. He says we are to teach obedience. Look at how he says it. Teach them to observe. Or in the NIV it says obey. Teach them to obey all that I have commanded you. Now notice the emphasis with Jesus is obedience. It's not just knowledge. See, I want to clarify something. Over the years, I have heard individuals say, you know what, this or that church, it just don't go very deep. And I think there's maybe an expectation that this guy would be a Ravi Zacharias. I want you to know, first of all, I'm not Indian, okay? And second of all, okay, I can't, that guy makes my brain hurt. I am telling you, I listened to him for 30 minutes, my brain is smoking hot because it hurts and I don't understand half of it. Okay, if that's what you want, it's not going to happen here. But I will tell you what we will do. We will preach God's word without apology. 
We will try to train people, equip you to serve God. That's what I'm told to do in Ephesians 4. In, in 1 Timothy 4, we're told to, to preach God's word and to teach it. That's what I want. And I want you to know that I want to do it in such a way. I can throw out Greek terms if you wanted me to. I could throw out words like dispensationalism or sanctification or other hypostatic union of Christ if you want to hear that. But most people are like, what is that? I don't understand. I'd rather communicate the way Jesus communicated. And even though I like Ravi, Jesus is the one I emulate. That's what we need to do. Now, here's what you have to do. First of all, you need to be a learner. You and I need to be a learner. Hebrews 5 says this. Anyone who lives on milk, being still an infant, is not acquainted with the teachings about righteousness. But solid food is for the mature who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. Now, according to this, we have a responsibility to dig deeper into God's word ourselves. It would look silly if I was to just spoon feed you as an adult. Come on, here we go. Open up. Whoop, here it goes. That would be silly for me to do that. That's below the dignity of an individual. Now, we do that one-on-one. -on -one. When there's a new believer, I want them to understand the simple truths. But you and I have a responsibility to dig in deeper. But you and I also have a responsibility to give it away. See, God didn't say, take it in, take it in, be like a buffet. I want to go to this Bible study and that Bible study. I'm going to go to the, hear that sermon, and I'm going to listen to that podcast. And, oh, man, i got to get Matt Chandler in there, and i got to get this guy in there, and i got to get James McDonald in there, and maybe we'll throw Steve Marshall in there. It's not in the same grouping, though. Uh, we're going to just consume, consume, consume. My friends, stop consuming so much and start doing more because God wants a balance if we're not giving away, we're not doing what he told us to do. Come on up here, Don. I wanted to bring a real-life example. Now, Don, he's, he's your regular blue-collar guy. I want you to know that. Don is a paramedic. If you collapse, he can help you. Now, he told me when we run together every Friday that if I collapse, he said, I'm not doing mouth-to-mouth. He said, sorry, I'm just leaving you alongside the road. Thanks, Don. Don, something's been happening at your work. Why don't you tell us what's happening? Well, over the, over the last couple years, um, I've been more convicted about um, just redeeming everything you do, whether it's work or your hobbies or uh, whatever you do. Um, and, you know, the Great Commission really triggered that for me, I think. And it's not just um, going as international missionaries or supplying funds for them, but it's as you're going to work, um, as you're going to the gym, uh, as you're going to whatever you're doing, uh, they, you know, it's got to bring glory to God. So I've been praying for those opportunities. I've had a, a couple of good ones, and, and one, of the, one of the better ones is at work. Uh, we've hired some new guys the last couple of years, and um, one of them in particular kind of kind of sparked my interest. He's a, a young guy. He's um, uh, adopted never met his birth parents, um, raised in a family of like 12 siblings. And uh, he's just really struggling about who he is and, and what his life's about, what he's supposed to be doing. And we, we just started having some really good conversations about that. So I asked him about his, 
his faith, his salvation experience. And it was very broad, no real details, just um, it, like he was owning his, his adopted parents' um, salvation. So we started getting into that. And um, next thing I know, we're sitting at um, the dining room table in a fire station for an hour and a half talking about the word, which is courageous on his part, very bold to do that in a fire station. And it has now spawned into four of us getting together at Bob Evans every couple weeks for breakfast. And right now we're working through the book of James and uh, it's been really good. And I've now started to come up with some questions to get them to force them to kind of be interactive so it doesn't seem like I'm teaching, but um, you know, I'm not a great teacher. I'm not really that well spoken. I'm not a preacher. But Amen. With these <laughs> You're doing pretty good though. There's no way I could talk that long and anyhow. Uh, so I'll take care of that. <laughs> so um, so yeah, it's been really good. We got like I said, we got four guys now. A couple of these guys are still on the milk, you know, and the, the guy that really sparked my interest being one of those. And um, you know, it's um, it's not so it's not me, it's not hard, uh, but it's not me teaching these guys. It's I'm we're keeping it simple, and we're just letting the Holy Spirit guide the conversation. I'm just kind of facilitating the conversation through the Word. Thanks, Don. So. Appreciate it. My my prayer for you as a part of my prayer, I I want to pray that God would put upon you that you would pray that God would raise up somebody in your life that you could pour into. My prayer is that every person has one person that they're able to, to give away some of the word that God has given them. As we come to a conclusion, I want to ask two questions of you. Two questions that are vitally important as we think about this conquest. Number one question is, has the conquest of Christ touched your life personally? Have you become a committed follower of Christ? See, the resurrection is doing you no good by looking at it from afar. Jesus didn't die on a cross so that you could wear an emblem around your neck or a tattoo on your body. He didn't do that so it could be an external thing. He did it so that he could personally have conquest in your own life, and that is the, probably the greatest battle that you're ever going to face because we got a lot of pride. We don't want to admit that we've done something wrong, but here's the deal. God says that you are separated from him because of your sin. A holy God cannot accept you in your sin and in your condition. But he, out of great love, saw that need and said, I will die for your sin. I will pay for the penalty of your sin. I will send my only beloved son to die on the cross to love you in that way. And then the Bible says it is a gift. It is a free gift. It says the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. But you have to take the gift. In a moment, if you feel like you have been far from God, I am going to pray. And I hope that you, if this is where you're at, if you are, are, are done with your pride, if you're done trying to do it on your own, if you think you can make it through this life without God, or you think you can take a sabbatical from God, and you can kind of go do your own thing and just have your fun right now, please understand, you're misguided greatly. God wants 
all of your heart. The resurrection demands your all. Will you be all for God? All in. I will pray for you in a minute. Here's the second question I want to ask. If you have become a Christ follower, are you advancing the conquest of Christ? If so, it will be evident in the story of your life. In a moment, we're going to conclude with two songs, Blessed Assurance, that talks about the story of your life being read. This is my story. This is my song. Has there been a transformation in your, in your life? And the last song we're going to sing reminds us why this story is even possible because of the conquest of Christ and his resurrection. Let me pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we pause right now. And I want to just lift up those right now that would honestly say in their hearts, I've been, I've been walking completely away from you, God. I don't know you. And they would finally come to that place, would say, yeah, God, I do need to surrender. I know I'm a sinner. I know I've, I've messed up things royally in my life. But I believe. I believe in what you did. I believe that you died on the cross, that you were buried, and that you rose again to prove that you're God. And I want to yield my life. I want this to be the landmark day, Lord, where I put the stake in the ground where I follow you, that I become a Christ follower. Lord, I give my heart. I give my heart completely to you. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. I hope that was your prayer.